Hi, everyone, and welcome to 50 Now What? I'm your host, Alicia Sutton. Today, I'm honored to welcome the author of Sonata for a Damaged Heart, Keisha Stewart. Keisha suffered a heart attack at an abnormally young age of 31, only two weeks after having a child. In this episode, we discuss some of her experiences that she outlines in this moving memoir, the concept of strong woman syndrome, what it means to live in the in-between, and why pregnancy is the ultimate stress test for your heart and what you need to do to be ready for it. Keisha shares her experience so that she can be an advocate for someone else when it happens to them and they need someone to have their back. Let's dive right in. Well, hi, Keisha. It's so nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. <laughs> and glad to have you here on the show and uh, here on our on my little podcast here. And Sonata for a Damaged Heart is just phenomenal. I really, I read it. And I mean, it's about your near-death experience after suffering a heart attack at 31. And wow. And it's so inspiring and empowering enlightening, but most, it's also filled with so much information, which I was like, okay, Keisha's after my own heart. She digs deep. (laughs) She does the research. She gets the info. I love it. I said, this is it. And in all honesty, I'm not a crying type person. At least I don't consider myself to be that way. And I was reading through your book and by page 17, I was, I was just going, Keisha, she went, you went through the things. Yeah. So you you're went not the through first the one things. to tell me that. That's so funny. And it's, everyone says around six, page 16 or 17, they have the same reaction. Same reaction. <laughs> same reaction. And But it speaks to, you know, your, your writing voice is very honest, very genuine, and comes from a real uh, place of love and care for whoever's reading it. So I am not just honored to have you on the show, but honored that you're still with us to bring us this wonderful story. So all that aside... I don't want to waste a lot of time just talking about it. I want to hear from you. So one of the things you mention in the book and you talk about actually is when you uh, you were talking to uh, to your husband, talking to Mike, and it was about old Keisha. And uh, it basically, she's not coming back. Everything's going to be different. Uh, so we'll just lead in. My first question is, who was the old Keisha? What was going on before uh, this life-altering change? Well, the old Keisha was full of, no pun intended, full of life. (laughs) You know, I didn't, I knew, you know, the good and the bad of the world, but I think maybe I was still even at, in my 20s and early 30s, maybe just naive because a lot of the outside things didn't affect me. I didn't think about death, especially, you know, I liked to go out with my friends, with my husband. I didn't dwell on mortality. I didn't dwell on the bad. You know, I was just living my life day to day, just living my life. I was always an optimist who tried not to be too pessimistic ever. (laughs) I wore that mask of, I'm happy, things are good. If I'm good, everyone else is good. And I was very social. And then after, my heart attack happened, I went within. I completely, I wasn't as social, I wasn't as energetic, and it wasn't just because of my heart attack that I didn't have the energy. I just didn't have the energy to want to go on in a certain way because I just felt, why? Why? 
you know, the heart attack happened when I was enjoying myself. I was having a good time. I was at a dinner party. I was speaking with friends. And if it could happen at one of my happiest moments, it could happen at any time. So why, why enjoy anything? You know, there was that increased fear to live. Wow. Whereas before, I didn't have that fear. You know, I would try new things. I would go to places and it wasn't so much so in those first few years of recovery. Wow. And you just had a baby it just a couple of weeks before uh, you just had Diego. And I mean, you were basically settling into into your life with this whole with this new life uh, coming in and not knowing that. And prior to that, you you were never sick. You had no other symptoms. They were just doing what you do in your 30s, having a good time. Right, right. And, you know, I had been pretty athletic my whole entire life. And like you said, I didn't have any sort of medical issues except for indoor-outdoor allergies. <laughs> that was, and, I, and I'm clumsy. I am so clumsy. Broken bones, sprained this, sprained that. Yes, I can attest to all of that. But as far as serious illnesses go, I didn't have anything wrong with me. There's no real heart history uh, in my family. I'm the first one to have something happen except for, you know, stress-induced hypertension, which, you know, for my parents as they got older and the positions that they had, you know, once they retired, their blood pressure went back right. down. <laughs> Everything got but better. I mean, right. They were like, oh, I, totally great. Get it. I don't have to take my pills. But, <laughs> but, you know, but that's not genetic, you know, so... Diabetes does run in my family and diabetes and heart disease are kind of like kissing cousins. Sometimes if you have one, you can have the other, but that was never, heart disease was never something that we discussed at all. And so El, and going to the moment where you actually, like you said, you were out with friends and enjoying your life and, and you have this at the time. And in, even in reading the book, you still were like, well, you know, what could this be? You know, it was like, you know, this couldn't be, you know, you weren't thinking it was going to be a heart attack. And you described that very well. But going to those moments when you're at the hospital and you describe it like, you know, you kind of had resigned to, okay, this is it. You know what I mean? You're, you know, telling Mike, I love you, raise the kids together, you know, and all that. Did you have uh, what you would consider to be an outer body experience that gave you that resolve? Or were you more just, just describe that a little bit more? I did. I did. So when they were working on me initially in the first hospital, there's a certain standard protocol that you do if someone comes in with a heart attack. You know, you give them, you start an IV, you give them fluids, you give them nitro, you know, you give them aspirin. There's all these different things. You give them increased oxygen. And while they were doing that, I was still feeling the pain. There was no, no relief. There was no release. and it hit me that I was laying there, still feeling the pain, knowing that heart attacks happened, still didn't realize exactly what or why at that moment, why it happened to me. And I just kind of said, this, this is going to be it. I mean, who has a heart attack? How many of us have heart attacks and survive? I know many people do, but in that moment, it had just been so long since I had first recognized symptoms that I, I just said, this 
isn't going to end well. And it was kind of like at that moment that I did kind of see myself hovering above, seeing myself, seeing Mike sit next to me, seeing the doctors and nurses work on me, and recognizing the fact that I, I'm about to leave this world. And that's why I'm seeing this. And there's a certain calmness that came, I think, because I recognized that there was an issue and I just had to give it to God. I just had to say, if this is it, this is it. I'm not going to fight. You know, if it's meant to be, then that's what will be. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad whatever it was in that moment, you know, something forced me back down. I think that it might have been, you know, my love for my husband, my children, and just this spirit that I have to fight. Someone once asked me, what is it? What made you or forced you to, you know, every time you got knocked down, you got back up? And I said, I don't know. I don't know if it's my Haitian roots. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't it. know if personality. <laughs> I don't know if it was my parents because they always told us, you never give up. Don't ever give up. But something, a fire was lit in me to say, okay, I have to fight this. I have to do something. I have two children. I can't leave. But yeah, that outer body experience, it was the most surreal thing I had ever have happened to me or experienced in my whole entire life. I don't think I'll ever have such. And it's weird to say it was comforting as I thought I was tying. <laughs> but there's almost, you know, this certainty. You're just like, okay, the decision has been made. All right, I'm just going to be calm. And what happens, happens. I'm okay. I've lived my life. <laughs> this is it. This is it. <laughs> right, I'm done. Right. And at some point, like you said, you you come back and I love the moment and you describe it also in, in the book is that you're looking at, I think it was, was it Dr. G? I guess had looked at you and said, it's going to be okay. Oh, okay. So that was after they transported me to the next hospital. It was Dr. H who worked on me and he he told me he, that I was going to be okay. He said that I was going to be okay. And actually the paramedic that was next to me as they were uh, transferring me to the other hospital, she told me, you know, just hang on. You're going to be fine. Just hang on. All I wanted to do was close my eyes. All I wanted to do was just close my eyes and just drift off to sleep because when you have a heart attack, all that energy is depleted in you. That fight that you think that you're going to have sometimes just isn't there. Your body is exhausted. And remember, I had a baby two, two weeks, weeks. Two mm -hmm. weeks ago. Yes. Um, so my energy levels were already down the toilet. <laughs> yes. 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 So for my body to fight or try to heal from that, and then on top of that, now it's trying to fight and heal from this heart attack. It was just too much. At the moment, I just, I just said, I'm sleepy. I just, I just want to go. I just want to sleep and that'll be it. Oh, so much to that. So much in that. Well, we, we're glad that you, you held on. Something in your spirit brought you back. It, was, it wasn't time. It wasn't time. It was for you to experience it and bring it to us. And one of the things, too, you talk about after, you know, you, you're in the hospital and, you're trying to heal and you finally get home and 
you know, you're still trying to make room for everyone else, even though you're healing. I think there's this, oh, and you talk about it so so graciously in the book is, you know, you you feel like I guess the super woman syndrome or I, I like to call it strong black woman disease <laughs> or whatever you want to call yeah, it. Right. This, right. this thing where you have to just keep going for the sake of everyone else. And how did you manage that? And I'm, and I'm sure that that kind of led to a lot of the other, uh, I guess it was almost like PTSD. I mean, you just had this traumatic experience and suddenly you're still having to fight to sustain yourself and make sure everything else is okay. Right. So I didn't handle it. <laughs> you know, I got very depressed. I, it's unfortunate that we put so much pressure on ourselves to do so much when it's not even necessary. I mean, why do we do it to ourselves? Why? I'm taking care or I'm considering, you know, what my husband is going through, what my five-year-old son is going through, what other people around me who are trying to help me are going through. I'm so focused on everyone else. It took time and strength away from the healing that I needed to do. And as women, we have to place ourselves as a priority. Self-care is not selfish. It's selfless. Because if you take care of yourself, if you really want to be that superwoman or that strong Black woman, if you take care of yourself, then you'll be around to take care of others, your loved ones, family, friends. Absolutely. But because I was stuck in that state, I mean, I have been an independent woman for a very long time. And it was hard for me to depend on other people. So you kind of fall back into the status quo. You fall back into what you know. But what I knew was no longer able to be applicable in this new normal. And that was a struggle. It's a struggle to allow other people to have control. I don't like other people to have control over anything I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know that. I know that. <laughs> I know that. I know that. And but it's you know, but in that moment, I struggled with that. And it took a very long time for me to be able to let that go and recognize it takes a village. I have to accept the help and being a burden is a fallacy. Your friends and family want to help. They wouldn't be there if they didn't want to help. And I think all women need to recognize that. Absolutely. And you talk a lot about, not a lot about, but you do uh, bring in some more information. Like I said, you brought in the the info. I'm trying to get to all of it <laughs> without giving away all the spoilers for the book. Without giving away this, but they mesh together so well. I mean, there was no way you couldn't touch on the depression part of it, the superwoman syndrome, and also your experience. And and, and just, if I want to put on record that you also are, you work in the, you're a healthcare provider. You were, even before you uh, had the heart attack, yes, you were. Yes, I was a nursing assistant when my heart attack happened. I have since gone back to school and in 2014, I became an RN. I got my license. I graduated valedictorian of my nursing class. But yes, I knew medical. I knew things. I knew what the signs and symptoms of a heart attack was because I had patients that had heart issues. But never in my wildest dreams would I have ever thought that a woman could have a heart attack after having a baby. I know that a lot is placed on your body. But I didn't know that that was something that I needed to be concerned about or watch for. You know, 
you only hear about preeclampsia. And oh, if your blood pressure is high, you got preeclampsia, and then we have to treat that. But you don't hear about the fact that pregnancy is nature's cardiac stress test, the ultimate stress test, and the signs and symptoms that you need to be aware of just in case. Many women end up discovering that they have heart issues while they're pregnant because that's when things tend to come out because of that extra stress, that extra work that your heart has to do. But yeah, I mean, being in the healthcare field and having been dismissed or they tried to dismiss me, it was just surreal. And one of the driving forces for me to go back to school was that experience. I wanted to be an advocate for the people who weren't able to speak up because if I would have listened to that person in the beginning, when I first got to the ER, I would have gone home. I would have said, oh, maybe it was anxiety. I'll just go home and rest. And I wouldn't have woken up the next day. You wouldn't have. And uh, and I want to go back to that as well. And because you hit all of the statistical markers of what happens to a woman when she goes to the hospital, and specifically a Black woman uh, when you are seeking medical care, and the uh, systematic racial disparities. I mean, you were uh, dismissed, basically. It was a very dismissive, uh, kind of like, oh, you know, you this is for your um, women like you have this, basically, that you were just, it was somehow an emotional problem. Um, right. <laughs> and, you know, and for you having... Knowing your own body, obviously, because you know you've been an athlete, you've been you were in great shape, and your experience in the, the the medical profession, you understood what was happening, and even still through that, having to advocate for yourself in the middle of a heart attack, you know, and most people, a lot of people wouldn't do that. They would, like you said, accept that. And I want to talk a little bit about that, and you touch on it some of the statistics there, and it that disparity doesn't really have any much to do with uh, where you are. They found, and I learned this in your book, that it doesn't have anything to do with money or uh, socioeconomic, I mean, or celebrity in that case. We know Serena Williams had a, a circumstance health crisis after her baby. And oh, I, the uh, Olympic uh, medalist, uh, Tori Bowie, Bowie um, last year died as well while she was eight months pregnant. And so it is something that to me feels like crisis. Yes, it definitely is definitely crisis. And so when I'm reading your book, I'm like, this is it. This is why Keisha's here, part of it. <laughs> right, right. Essentially, you know, I learned that I survived for a reason. And it would have been a travesty, a complete travesty to all the women before me who passed away if I didn't take advantage of the second life that I was given, the second chance at life that I was given. Why would I waste it away? And that essentially is what helped bring me out of my depression. It was, who am I to, you know, not utilize what I've been gifted? Because it's a gift. Living through that, surviving, is a gift. And I do believe, frankly, that evening, you know, they just saw me when they, like, walked in. Well, I didn't walk in. My husband wheeled me in. But when they saw me, they just saw a hysterical woman a hysterical Black woman, maybe. And it's unfortunate that women have this whole horrible uh, stereotype that we're dramatic. You know, I've seen men a lot more dramatic. <laughs> right. For having a hangnail. 
Right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So the the whole idea is just absurd to me. And in the past, the times that I've done some speeches, I've said, if they think that we're dramatic, then be dramatic. Show them what dramatic really looks like. Because you know you. No one's going to fight for your life harder than you. And if they're already thinking that, cause a scene. You know, I'm not the angry, loud Black woman. I am an individual who wants to live, an individual who understands. You know, I have a place in this world, and I'm trying to keep it. And all women have a place in this world, and they do not deserve to be dismissed. Even if it turns out to be nothing, even if it is anxiety or a panic attack, that's fine. Mental health is an issue, right? It is an issue. Yes. So why are we making people feel bad for wanting to take care of themselves, for wanting to get checked out? What is it to anyone, any of the staff there? You're still getting paid. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what blows me away is like, and, and you know that you work in this field and your job is to be in the care of people. How are you irritated that someone comes in who, whether it's a mental illness or a depression, it's still an illness. Someone is still sick. They still, it's, it's not just someone playing games. This is not, it's not television. This is real right, life. Right. <laughs> and it is absolutely that. And I think there is such a stigma attached to working with your own mental health. Like you say, you you went into a depression after this because of the stress and strain and still thinking that you're trying to mask it to care for everyone else around you and you can't let anyone else know. You know, hiding it, burying your feelings and and going through all those things. It took a while when you describe it there. And I I love one of the chapters, you call it uh, living between submission and denial, really getting to a place where you recognize the value in your own life and how you have to live in between that. Let's, I want to talk a little bit about that, uh, how you came to that resolution. Living between. So living between, basically, you know, you have this, you're dealing with life now, right? You have to accept the fact that this major thing happened to me. So that's the submission, right? This happened to me. Now, what am I going to do to fix it. And then at the same time, thinking that you can still take on so much, so denying that you still need to take care of yourself. So there's this feeling that you're kind of a hypocrite to yourself because you know, you know you have to take care of your body. Or in my case, I knew I had to take care of my body. I knew at that moment that I was accepting the fact that this happened to me and I'm going to have to live with that. But I was denying how much I really needed in order to live, if that makes sense. I was denying all the things that, all the tools, all, you know, all the advice given, you know, I just figured I went back to that superwoman syndrome where I can handle it. I can handle it. I can handle anything. But I'm going to be quiet about the things that I feel like I can't handle. I'm going to be quiet about, you know, the things that I can't do because I don't want to seem weak to everyone else around me. And it's that feeling of weakness that's 
It's just not realistic. It's not weakness. You're waking up. If you wake up today and you get out of bed, that's amazing. Great. You did something, you know, when you're in the real thick of depression and you have to take these little baby steps. And I went from zero to a hundred and I didn't consider the baby steps. I think I believed that I was doing everyone else good instead of doing myself good. And it's peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. You know, I recognized it and I was really treating myself right. And then you get so absorbed with other things that are happening in your life that you've let your health fall to the wayside. And you think that you're okay. You have this belief that, okay, well, I don't have chest pain today. I'm okay. So I'm going to handle A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Instead of saying, I did have this heart attack. Let me pace myself. Let me give myself some grace here. And even if you want to do A through G, let me break it up into pieces or let me give it to someone else so that way we can do it together. So, you know, that's what happened to me. And it's something that you have to come to a realization on your own. No one can tell you. (laughs) No one can convince you. You have to recognize within yourself what that means to live in the in-between and why it's good or why it's not good. And then eventually you come out on the other side, hopefully saying, okay, all right, put me first. Put me first. Put my mask on before I put on the masks of others. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And, and it makes don't sense. deny it. It's part of you now. Don't deny what happened. It's part of you. It's one thing to accept that, okay, it happened. But it's another thing to truly ingest it and digest it. It's completely surreal. Completely surreal. You know, I often thought, I shouldn't be here. And yet, look what I did to myself years later, you know? I wasn't taking care of myself. And, you know, so, yeah, I I think all women had that sense of living in the in-between. It doesn't have to necessarily be your heart. It can be anything. It can even be, you know, changing a position, a new job, living in the in-between because you have to leave one life to go to another life and you're pretending, you're masking that everything is okay. Exactly. And it happens to us all so much. And like you're just going through life. And the thing about it too, and in reading your book, I could see I could see that you you thought no one else could see it. Did you ever have that sense that I have got this, no one sees this, I've got it all, no one knows this. But yet the people who are closest to you and love you, they can sense that you're that something's off, that something's breaking, that you're not who you are. And I love how, um, you know, you were talking about your mom suddenly, you know, she wants to, you know, uh, did you get my recipes or <laughs> I'm going to call you, I'm going to call you back on Friday. And I was right. looking at that going, you know, when a mom starts to, you know, check, I'm a, your mom is going to check in a little bit more. It's kind of like, yeah, she knows something is, is happening. And of course your husband, Mike, and of course, even the children probably sensing something, you know, yeah, is there, they, they can pick up on those, those cues. Something's not right, but it's only when, when you check in, when you check in with you, when you realize it, when something spirals, you hit your bottom, so to speak, that you can go, okay, yeah, I need to accept help, which is all coming from a place of love. Right. And the people around you yeah, are you coming can't, from a place of love. Your loved ones, the people who know you are going to know. Who know you, yeah. You can't hide from them. No matter how much you want to put on this 
brave, strong face, they're going to know. And that's what happened to me. You know, I started thinking that I could handle everything. And then my marriage was being affected because I wasn't taking care of myself. Uh, my kids were being affected because I wasn't taking care of myself. My position was being affected, my job, because I wasn't taking care of myself. So then, you know, you think, oh, I have everything handled. And then when you really, really dissect it all, do you? I had to say, do I really have everything handled? Because I missed my son's, you know, soccer, ha first half of my so son's soccer game because I overworked myself and now I'm having chest pain. Or, you know, I fell asleep and I didn't have anything to discuss with my husband because I was just so exhausted because I didn't listen to my body. So we don't have that communication now. So there's all different little tidbits that happen throughout your life, throughout the days that you can say, oh, wow, I thought I had that handled, but look, I didn't. I didn't complete all the things that I thought I was able to complete. I wasn't there the way I thought I was able to be there. And I almost have a visceral reaction because of it. You know, I'm almost sick to my stomach because I took that away from my husband and my kids, that joy for a period of time. And I took, and I stole it from myself. Yes. I stole it from myself. Uh, there's a saying that if you don't take care of your health or make time for your health, your health will steal time from you. And that's exactly what was happening. You were losing your time. You were losing your time. Oh, wow. Wow, that, that's, that's such a beautiful, I have so much more I want to ask. That's just, just such a beautiful place to, to land. But I, I did want to ask this one thing, too, when we talk about mental health. Because at, at the end of the day, so much of your book comes to you recognizing where you needed to go to take care of yourself emotionally. And, and how did you feel about seeking treatment? Because there's still a stigma attached to actually getting the type of uh, treatment for depression and going to actually see a uh, psychiatrist and someone who could uh, be a third party and getting you to break those things down. I don't think a lot of times we don't necessarily recognize that you need that person, that professional person who can help you put those things into perspective. How were you when you first started to seek out that treatment? Where were you at? Where, what space were you in and what brought you to, okay, this I need help with? So I think some of it, I was still in denial. I thought that I could do it myself. I worked in mental health for many years. So I understood and I knew for me, it wasn't a stigma, but for whatever reason, it's that mentality of being able to handle it on your own that just did me a disservice. If I would have sought help sooner than later, I probably would have been much better off. I know I would have been much better off because I didn't. Your mental affects your physical. And my mental state affected my heart, essentially. You know, it put a, an unneeded stress on my soul that my heart couldn't take. And my heart started to ache because of it. I don't have, obviously, me working in mental health. I believe in it. 
But when you're trying to look at yourself and place yourself in that position, it's hard. It's hard to do. Just like if they say nurses and doctors are the worst patients. Well, because we know a lot. You do. (laughs) And there's just certain things that we think that we can handle on our own. There's certain things that we think that we don't need help with. And unfortunately, that that was me. That was me. I completely regret not getting the help that I needed sooner. It really set me back. It really did. I was getting better. I was doing okay. But because I wasn't really dealing with all the emotions and I wasn't really asking for the help that I needed from family and friends or talking about what I was going through, what I had been through, my fears, my doubts, my heart, the function of my heart dropped. It did. And eventually I had to make a choice. I had to decide what am I going to do? Am I going to live or am I going to just waste away? And I chose to live. You chose to live. We're so glad you chose to live. We're so glad. I am so glad you chose. I'm going to say me. I'm glad you chose. (laughs) Alicia is glad. Like, that anybody care? But let's get to where you are now. Because in seeing you now, you are aglow. You are you are just radiant and i i can feel your energy is just just a very powerful loving kind energy and you've and, and i'm one of those people that i know the show is called 50 now what but i'm not one of the people that think just because you're older that you somehow that you uh, are why that wisdom comes with the fact that you've turned a certain age i think that it really comes from from this from your experience from this discovery from the digging in deeper to even with you know, the time that you may regret not getting things sooner, all of that is about you becoming this this being who we are all here to experience what you have to give to the world. So with all that said, what would you say in encapsulate for the listeners? Uh, what would be what would you want everyone to be left with? I mean, we have so much already that you've given us just in the book and in this conversation, but just on a on a last note, if you had one last thing that you wanted to say words of wisdom, what would you want to give us? Knowledge is power. Knowledge is what empowers us. You have to know yourself and you have to understand yourself in order to use your voice. Your voice is one of the most powerful things that you possess. Use it and use it in a confident way because you know yourself, you know what you're talking about. You know your body. Use that voice. And no matter who says, oh, okay, no matter who dismisses you, they won't be able to dismiss you anymore because you're going to keep coming back. You're going to keep using your voice because it's a fight for your life. If you want to be here, you need to fight to be here. And it's unfortunate that you have to fight just to live your life, but we are in a place where That's what needs to be done. So for me, knowledge is empowerment. And your voice is the most powerful possession that you have. Beautiful, beautiful. The book is Sonata for a Damaged Heart. It's available now. It's out. It's out on Amazon. (laughs) 
on Amazon, go get it, go get it. it you'll, you'll absolutely love it. And where else can my listeners find you on uh, the social media? So my Instagram is Keisha and SCAD. On Facebook, I have a Facebook page, Keisha Living with SCAD. I also have a website, which is KeishaNSCAD.com. <laughs> Real simple. Everything is, you know. <laughs> gotcha. Cohesive throughout. <laughs> Got it. And we'll definitely uh, put it in the show notes for the listeners. Uh, if you didn't catch it, you can just scroll down to the show notes and all the information about Keisha Stewart and her book, So Not For A Damaged Heart. Go get it. You won't regret it. Thank you for being with us, Keisha. Oh, thank you for having me, Alicia. <laughs> Thank you for listening to 50. Now what? A special thank you to Keisha. Be sure to click the link in our show notes to purchase your copy of Sonata for a Damaged Heart. Make sure to follow us, rate, and share the show. Make sure to follow me on Instagram for continuous updates at 50 Now What Podcast. That's 5-0 Now What Podcast. This podcast was produced by Rainbow Creative with Matthew Jones as senior producer, Stephen Selnick as producer, and Rob Johnson as editor and audio engineer. I love working with this team. To learn more about making a podcast for you or your business, visit them at rainbowcreative.co.